You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I am truly grateful for each of you for tuning in today. And support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, bringing the Jackson Hole community residential and commercial food waste composting options. Call 307-733-7678 for more information. Today's episode, I'm beginning about sharing a few books that I have recently read. The books are written by the Arbinger Institute, and the titles of these two books are, one, The Anatomy of Peace, and the second one is Leadership and Self-Deception. These books I was introduced to by a, a friend, and they explain that we all have a problem to be solved, and even as we work to solving this problem, we will still always have this problem. The content teaches us how to understand the problem we have and how to reduce the impact. This problem influences our lives and the people's lives who we connect with each day. So I give these books a highly must read. You can find them at your local bookseller. You can find them on audio versions, however you get your audio books. And I'm sure you can find them on the internet. But go, go visit your local bookseller. And welcome to episode number 236. My guest today is Katie Standifer. Katie is an outdoor enthusiast. She's a published author and a survivor. Katie was living here in Jackson Hole for a period of time. And now she's returned to living here again, right here in the valley. But several years back, due to a health crisis, Katie was forced to leave Jackson Hole. She didn't have a choice. And without health insurance, Katie, with this health crisis, figured out a way to receive the treatment she needed to survive. And I tell you what, folks, survive and thrive is what Katie has done. What Katie has had is a journey with death. And today, while discussing her journey and her book, Katie wants people to think about their relationship with death. Well, Katie, welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. It is delightful to have some time and speak with you and get to know you. Such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. And you live here in Jackson, correct? I do. I live in Moose currently. In Moose. And so share with folks who are not Jackson natives or maybe have not visited, where is Moose? So Moose is about 20 minutes north of town. It's at the entrance to Grand Teton National Park. Or depending on where you live in Moose, you may be entirely surrounded by parks. A lot of the houses here are prior inholdings that were around before park boundaries were solidified. And so I'm out in the middle of Antelope Flats, which is where the bison range is probably how folks would know it best. And just in an amazing house for four months while my old friend Charlie Craighead is down in Arizona to take a break from winter. Well, good on you for having a great friend like Charlie Craighead <laughs> who is loading you his house while he's in Arizona for the winter. And it is a real, real special spot and kind of a miracle. Yeah, I've known Charlie since at least 2006, maybe 2004. And 
this is just an incredible location. I'm staring at the Grand Town right now. It's right in front of the house. And it's a very wild location. The wolves haven't come by since I've been here, but apparently Charlie said they were here right before he left. So I'm hopeful they'll swing back this way. So not a location where if you have a dog, you let your dog just outside to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Possibly not. No, luckily I do not have a dog. I've been focused on making friends with the magpies who okay. like to come over and look in the windows and see see what's happening here. <laughs> How cool. So Katie, where did you grow up and how did you land here in Jackson? So I grew up outside Chicago in a suburb called Arlington Heights. It's on the northwest side of the city. And it was a place that really did not resonate for me. I had a lot of trouble growing up there. I was sort of in a tract, tract suburb surrounded by strip malls and really felt as a kid the pain of watching the wild scraps of woods and wetlands get covered over for big box parking lots and more subdivisions. Mm -hmm. And my parents started us skiing at a pretty young age. We started in Colorado and we would drive out over spring break. And when I was seven, we crossed Wyoming for the first time to visit Steamboat Springs. We sort of went through the corner of Wyoming on the way down through the Medicine Bow. And I told my parents I was going to be a writer who lived in a cabin in Wyoming. I was very obsessed with the open space that we were crossing, the sort of sage landscape. And we ended up in Jackson on a trip when I was going into my freshman year of college, or not college, uh, high school. And so I was 14 and had sort of a traditional Grand Teton Yellowstone family vacation. And at the time, I'd already been rock climbing for a few years at my local YMCA. And we saw some kids going back into the Tetons to rock climb. And we ended up asking at Skinny Skis, who did that? How, how could I climb as part of these groups? And now that I know Jackson, I'm very surprised that we got the answer that we did. But whoever was there told me to look up a group called Trails Wilderness School, which huh. no longer exists. Trails was based on the old Teton Valley Ranch in Kelly, and they ran wilderness groups similar to Knowles, but with slightly tighter age groups. And it was a family-run operation. The woman in the couple who ran trails was Ornan. And so I got really obsessed with this concept and was having a lot of family drama at home. It was a really difficult year, freshman year of high school. And so my dad and I talked about these courses and he suggested I do a 14-day course and I was staying on the 30-day and he said, well, you can pay for the difference. And so a lot of my high school years were then spent babysitting and mowing lawns and eventually I got a cleaning lady job. I worked uh, selling gear at Galleons, if anyone remembers that. It got bought out by Dick's Sporting Goods. And my, the focus of my life turned to paying for these wilderness trips. And that first course that I did in the summer of 2000 was three weeks backpacking down in the Wyoming range and then four days whitewater kayaking on the snake and a few days climbing in the Tetons culminating in in the summit of the Grand. So just very like classic Jackson tourist things. But I ended up returning to do more courses with trails and then becoming an employee with trails. I completed their leadership course and just really fell in love with the sage landscapes and the style of forest and what it what it felt like to be in this area. That is a major commitment to come back here. Most kids would not give that dedication just to 
go spend another 14, 15 days in the wilderness. <laughs> it's true. But there's something, it's so funny. A guy in a bar just the other night asked me the same question. Like, why do you like Jackson so much? He was actually about to move away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so fine, good on him. But, it, you know, it was like, there's something about me that becomes more me when I'm here. And it's really hard to put a finger on. I am so deeply moved by being in the middle of this many hundreds of miles long functioning ecosystem. There's something about the deep pine forest, the pine aspen mix and being around these big mammals. You know, I have lived some other places now in my adult life. I'm sure we'll get there, but I've sort of been cycling in and out of Jackson and there's nothing like that. There's just something internally that feels deepened and made more alive by this ecosystem. And you told your parents you're going to be a writer living in a cabin in <laughs> Wyoming. I did. And tell me about your writing. Yeah. What took you on the path? I mean, you were 14 when you said that, correct? Or it was seven. Seven. Yeah. You knew you were going to be a writer at the age of seven? Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, some people, it takes them a while to find their life path. For me, it takes me longer to find other things like a partner and housing. <laughs> but writing in Wyoming have sort of been the consistent loves of my life. Yeah, so as a kid, I was constantly writing novels, writing songs, writing poems. And when I went to college, I ended up double majoring in sociology and fiction writing and actually wrote two of my theses on this area. Both I did a study on how people form sense of place and how that impacts their response to a massive industrialization event. And that was focused around Pinedale, which was the largest fracking site in the country at the time. So when fracking was new technology. So I was interviewing people about their relationship to Wyoming and the Upper Green River Valley in particular, and kind of squaring that against how they related to the fracking and and their sense of place. And then I, I also wrote a fiction novella that was based here in the Valley. And so when I graduated college in 2007, I knew that the, the long term was become an author as my career. And part of why working in this area really appealed to me was because of seasons. So I could work in outdoor education and put in a ton of hours in the summer and winter and then have spring and fall to really work on my writing more intensely and still be having interesting experiences to write about. And so my first few years that I was here out of college, I was publishing some poems and playing with some stories. And then one day in 2009, I was practicing with my band. I also used to play at the Hootenanny every Monday night and was in a folk band that played at the farm market and the art association art fairs and the other places that a folk band might expect to play in town. And so James and I were practicing for the Hootenanny that was going to be on the stage at Center for the Arts. And I took a phone call and ran outside his house to, to pick up that call. And then I passed out. I went into what may or may not have been cardiac arrest and woke up in this parking lot not knowing who I was or where I was. And it took a while. I started getting my wits back about me, realizing where I was, then who I was, and couldn't move or speak for a little bit. And then finally I could. And I started calling James's name and then he came out. And my younger sister a few years earlier had started going into cardiac arrest in her dorm room. And we had discovered we had a genetic 
around me and family. And so as soon as I woke up and sort of understood the situation, it was like, oh my God, this is happening to me. And because the year was 2009, the Affordable Care Act had not yet been passed and I was uninsured at the time, oh. uh, <laughs> which is, you know, idiotic since I was teaching climbing and skiing and, and should have had um, some kind of catastrophic plan in case I broke my leg. But you know what it's like to be 24 and think that you'll be okay and that you'll land on your feet. And, you know, I also came from a privileged background where I think I didn't understand how catastrophic it could be to not have health insurance. And so I woke up in that parking lot and I think I understood right away that the nature of my rent would be changing because I was having this pretty crazy experience. And, you know, it's a much longer story, but that ended up becoming my first book. Wow, that's a lot there, Katie. A whole lot. <laughs> now, it's a crazy story. <laughs> yeah. So I'm very interested to know, well, why don't you sh share the title of your book? So the book is called Lightning Flowers. And, and there's a subtitle to that too. Yeah. Yeah. My journey to uncover the cost of saving a life. Beautiful. And we're going to get into that book. But beforehand, and maybe this is I'm sure this is in the book. My apologies for I that this time I have not read it. I've been swamped, as I was saying before, in some other books. I'm not the fastest reader. What some people could read in three hours probably takes me 12 hours. I'm just always happy people are reading at all. Yes. <laughs> so thank you for being a reader. <laughs> and we read a lot to our kids. So we do a lot of reading with, with kids. So sometimes I beat myself up. Oh, I'm not reading enough or I'm not. But then I think about how much my wife and I read to our kids. It's like, I'm reading. It might not be what I device. necessarily want to read, but you know, when my youngest comes out and is having breakfast and is sitting at the table with a book in his hands, it's, it's a blessing. So we'll keep encouraging. Your sister, you said that she was having, going into cardiac failure and there's a genetic, something genetic there. What is it that you you two found? Sure. So it's a genetic arrhythmia. It's called long QT syndrome. And, you know, the heart is an electrical organ. And so when it pumps, basically the sinus node in the heart, which is known as the heart's pacemaker, it sends signals to all these different parts of the tissue to prepare them for their next beat so that then they electrically can go off in a synchronized way. And it's that synchronization that allows the heart to pump in a way that sends blood to all of the essential organs all over the body. So part of what happens in long QT syndrome is you get a little bit of de desynchronization. Certain parts of the heart are ready to beat and some parts of the heart are not ready to beat. And so what you get is a quivering instead of a synchronized pumping. And cardiac arrest is just when blood is not making it to the main organs. And that's why you would pass out because there's not oxygenation. And so, yeah, my younger sister started going into cardiac arrest in her dorm room. And the weird thing with long QT syndrome, there are a few different types, but we are type two. And that tends to relate to the startle response in the body and adrenaline. So what was happening was her roommate's alarm clock would go off and it would desynchronize her heart and she would like almost die and was just very lucky as a young person that her heart would sort of restart, um, find its way back to rhythm. But that's not inevitable at all. When you hear about young people having these random deaths on sports fields, 
or, you know, drowning, sometimes car accidents, sometimes it's sudden infant death syndrome. A lot of these deaths where it feels like, oh, young people shouldn't just randomly be dying. It can have to do with these underlying rhythms that just haven't been diagnosed yet. So I knew that my sister had this and she had a doctor figure out what was going on. She had a cardiac defibrillator implanted during finals of her first semester of college. Bless Whoa. her. She's 19. And then get this, the wire moved in her heart during her recovery. And so she had to have it re-implanted during her second finals of freshman year. So our family had gone through this and I knew that this was a thing. And my mom had been trying to get me to get an EKG. And they said, like, we'll pay for it. Just into St. John's. And it was like, I'm, you know, at the time, 22, 23 working as a ski instructor, working at the climbing gym. The last thing on my list is walking into St. John's to ask for an EKG. And I think part of it was that I was terrified that if I got diagnosed with this thing, my life would be over. So was I surprised when I was the one waking up in the parking lot? Not really. But it was also devastating because it was like, what does it mean to live in a remote place and to have jobs that go into the backcountry if you have a potentially fatal arrhythmia? Holy buckets. I'm not even sure where to begin with that, but I'm so grateful that with all of your activities that you were doing, that you never had this come on before. I'm curious to know, you said that your sister's roommate's alarm clock was setting her heart off into the arrhythmia. What is it this, what set yours off? Yeah, it's such a good question. And it's actually still a mystery to this day. I assume it was the cell phone. I assume when, so this is actually a funny story. A friend had given me her contact for this hiking job, you know, just leading some random contract hikes around the valley. And I had shown up one day to give a hike at a ranch and no one was expecting me. I went, I had gone to the place that I was told to and no one was there. And so I had to call this boss and be like, what is going on? Will I still get paid for this day that I drove all the way out? You know, it was like by Side Lake. And <laughs> so when I was in the middle of band practice, it was that boss who called me. And I mm -hmm. like to say I was so happy I might get paid that I I died. <laughs> but like okay. I, the phone rang. I jumped up. I ran outside. My, my bandmate was not happy with me. He sort of glared at me like you're taking a call in the middle of this. But it was like, I need to talk to this person. I need to get paid. And then, you know, I wake up in the parking lot. Next thing I know, never did lead hikes for them <laughs> that summer. Did you get paid? I think I did get paid. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> Wait, okay. You got, yeah. you got paid. Oh. Well, and what's so strange about the whole situation you know, I'd had a few symptoms that winter that I dismissed as not symptoms, meaning I woke up one night in the middle of the night gasping for air. Mm. And that can be one of them if you're having an arrhythmia in your sleep. And I also was on a treadmill at Enclosure uh, sprinting one day. And all of a sudden, it, it was almost the way you would picture it in a cartoon with the heart beating out of your chest, like a, two feet in front of you, like a Bugs mm -hmm. Bunny sort of thing. That's how it felt. And it was terrifying. And I hit the stop button on the treadmill and sat down and it sort of returned to normal. And like, what did I try to do? I went back to sprinting and and my heart weird. So I stopped running for that day eventually. But I just, you know, when we're young, when we think we're invincible, it's really hard to separate out like, oh, bodies are sometimes weird. And a lot of times what you feel means nothing with like, oh, this is an actual symptom. And, you know, I can find kind of fast forward and say, it has been 
almost 14 years since the day I passed out in the parking lot, I basically ended up having to leave the valley in order to get a cardiac defibrillator because St. John's didn't have cardiology services back then. And because if I did the surgery anywhere else, I couldn't get a local discount, right? There weren't going to be local programs that applied to me because there just wasn't a hospital where I was local that had cardiology. And it was estimated, a cardiac defibrillator implantation in 2009 was estimated at $180,000 out of pocket. So what I ended up doing was moving to Boulder, where my younger sister said he could help me if I was local. And he said he would donate his fee. He ended up getting the anesthesiologist to donate his fee and the ICD company to donate. And then Boulder Community Hospital had a program that kicked in for a lot of it because I went in through the ER but it ended my life in Jackson. And so the wild thing is I've had a defibrillator now since 2009 and it's watching my heart all the time and I've never had another arrhythmia (laughs) in this whole time. I'm not even on medication right now. So it's a total freak thing where I do have, you know, I've had a genetic test confirm the result, but we don't know what it was about that day I had been up Paintbrush Canyon that morning. Like, what was it? It's a total mm. mystery. And obviously, I've been startled since then. You know, an ambulance goes off or whatever else. And yeah, who knows? Well, I'm glad that it's still ticking and that <laughs> defibrillator has not kicked in in the past 14 years and that you're, you're still here and you have the story to share with people. Yeah. Um, well, the defibrillator did, it did go off once by accident. Due to an error in its settings in 2012. And that's where the title of my book comes from. So the book is called Lightning Flowers. As some of you might recognize that term, it usually refers to when people are struck by lightning and the electricity follows the path of water in the body. And so you get these very beautiful, fern like, branched, rose colored burns. And they look like flowers on the body. Mm. And so it's like both very beautiful and very messed up because they're burns. And when I took three shocks to the heart in 2012, you know, 2000 volts cumulatively, it was this wild experience where the lightning came from inside my body and I didn't know what was happening at first. And then once I figured out like, oh my God, my device is shocking me, then it was like, I shouldn't be awake. You know, I should be conscious if it's trying to restart my heart. So why am I awake? And it's shocking me. And is it going to stop? And it did stop eventually, started yoga breathing. And that sort of brought my heart rate down to where the device stopped getting triggered in the particular weird way it was getting triggered. But I lay on this soccer field, looking up at the stars, waiting for the EMTs to arrive and I could smell my own burned tissues. Mm. And I had this totally bizarre thought about like, if this just saved my life, like I don't think it did, but if it did, where did the metal come from? And is it possible that someone else's life was adversely impacted in order to get this metal into my body? I found myself thinking about conflict minerals. And that's such a bizarre thing to say. I can only report that that's what happened at that moment. So I'm lying on this field And I'm smelling my own burned tissues and I'm thinking about like, where is the metal in my body from? Did it cost someone else something? What is my life worth kind of in this global economy? And and is that right? And how do I feel about that? And because that moment took the defibrillator from a device that might save my life to a device that actually also might hurt me, which unfortunately becomes a larger part of my story because I have some 
malfunctions and breakages with the technology later on in like 2016, 2017. It really changed me and changed my relationship to the device. And part of the book is tracing the path of the supply chain of a defibrillator and asking those questions in a more extended format. And I just think of those lightning flowers on the inside of my body, like no one else could see the way the inside of my body took the hit of that electricity. But, you know, I smelled it, I, I felt it move through my body in this certain way. And so both the book and the experiences I ended up having sort of wrestling with the technology and what it means to be a cyborg and what it means to be in the American healthcare system and what it means to face death as a young person. Like those are the lightning flowers that got imprinted on me. And so you have the lightning flower. I do. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we got to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors and we're going to come back and talk more about your book and your experience. And before we leave, could you remind me, say it again, how many volts were you shocked with? 2,000. So it would have been... Three separate shocks. Okay, folks, just think about that, getting shocked with 2,000 volts directly to your heart. All right, we'll be right back. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,662 tons of food waste are disposed of in the trash in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve the county's goal to reduce, aiming for zero waste. For more information on Teton County, ISWR's residential and commercial food waste programs, visit tetoncountywy.gov recycle. Change begins with each of us, one day at a time. Katie, welcome back. People were just thinking about, as they were listening to a quick sponsorship commercial, what it would be like to get shocked with 2,000 volts directly to your heart. And you've written this book. And what is it that you want people to take away from reading your book? What do you want them to learn? Mm, that's such a great question. And there are so many things I want them to learn. But I think at the heart of this book, is my journey with death, which I hope will be a way that all of us think about our relationships to death more collectively and the way that that relationship to death show up in the type of healthcare system we have and the way we use resources, the way our relationship to death actually shapes the planet as we use resources on certain types of healthcare. You know, as I already shared, I was sort of a stereotypical able-bodied young person who felt myself to be invincible. And after I passed out in the parking lot for the first time, I started taking a beta blocker medication to protect me from the arrhythmia. And because I was in such good shape, ironically, my, my blood pressure was already so low that the beta blocker dropped it really, really low. And so I had this terrifying period in the summer of 2009 here in Jackson, where if I tried to ride my bike to the library, I would almost like fall off my bike. I was just spinning. And if I tried to hike up Snow King, I would end up sitting on the side like, am I going to pass out because of my heart condition or am I going to pass out because of this medication? It just was a very terrifying time. And my partner at the time and I, he didn't want to leave me alone. So it was like very hypervigilant. So there was this way that like death came into my life and really took things over and I didn't know what to do with it. And it was like, how do you possibly live when the threat of death is so present and so real? 
you kind of have to be able to settle down in order to enjoy anything or pursue anything long term. And that is the same quandary that comes up over and over throughout the book for me. And I keep thinking I'm like solving death, right? I I get a defibrillator and like, oh, now I can't die. And then I actually almost die of sepsis instead in this book. And it's like, oh, there's all these other things I could die of. Like, what does it mean to be a human given that death is actually present at every moment and that in some ways we live better when we know that death is there, but also it can render things meaningless pretty quickly. And when you really viscerally understand that death is inevitable, what healthcare choices do you then make? And there's this like very interesting line between a sort of fatalism of like, well, nothing is worth it. But then you like wake up the next morning, and you're like, but I'm still here. <laughs> you know, like it, some things are worth it. And so a lot of my journey has been really teasing out the way that healthcare as a form of fixing death is just not a useful framework and really neglects so much of the human experience of what facing death or needing to go through healing is. And the book is a lot about what a technology can do and what it can't do. Unfortunately, my technological story ends with the fact that the wire that connects my device to my heart broke. And when we tried to remove it in 2016, it actually snapped off. And as we tried Further to remove it, the insulation got stripped off of it. So I now have a stripped nest of wire stuck in my right ventricle and a heart valve that has been deeply impacted by these surgeries. And so when I look at my life, so much more of my life has been impacted by the technology years and by the healthcare system that I'm trying to work in, whether it's having to quit my life and move 500 miles away just to access care in a pre-Obamacare US, or even after the Affordable Care Act, just having to work within the system in these ways where you're trying to coordinate between insurance and billing and you're on the phone all the time and you're calling and you're calling and the way that that system impacts a life, like you're trying to fight for life-saving care, but the act of fighting for life-saving care makes you not want to live. Um, that was my experience. Just the quality of my life seeping away the more time I had to spend on these healthcare interactions that were so frustrating frustrating and maddening. And so just really looking at like, given all this, like, what does good healthcare actually look like? What does it mean to live a good life for any one of us individually? On a scale of one to 10 for here in the US, where's the US with good healthcare? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, what a what a fascinating frame to put it in. Obviously, if you can break that down by category, the U.S. has extraordinary services available for particular conditions, available to specific people in specific situations, right? Part of my story is that through that whole healthcare battle, I did make it to the Mayo Clinic. And I can tell you there's nothing on the planet like the Mayo Clinic. It's extraordinary. It was absolutely my safe place. I received incredible care there. But that's not the standard of care in a lot of places. And especially as someone who likes to live rurally, we really see how that is not not the standard of care available to all people at all income levels in all geographical areas. So I don't know, and maybe put it at a five. You know, you you can be the luckiest person in the world for being in the U.S. if you get certain conditions. 
But I think also, especially as cardiologists read my book who aren't based in the U.S. and and reach out to me for conversations, it becomes very clear the sort of psychic burden, the hours and human potential we lose because of people having to fight these extraordinary bureaucratic battles in order to get certain types of care that they need, the paperwork, the calling, and also just this question of like how people make choices about their life knowing that their career might be related to what type of healthcare they are then able to receive. And to me, we often take that for granted in the U.S., that healthcare is a part of many people's jobs. I'm sure there's plenty of Jackson listeners who are like, nope, not getting healthcare through my employer. Thank goodness for the Wyoming healthcare marketplace. But for a lot of people, that plays into the choices they make. And people challenge me on this in book clubs. And I just feel like this is a place that we have an enormous lost human potential if people cannot pursue the things that they are best at, the places that they have the highest opportunity to serve. If they can't do those things, they can't make their art, they can't be an entrepreneur, whatever that looks like, because they can't get access to healthcare. They have to take whatever bribe job. And so, yeah, when we're thinking about what healthcare means in the U.S., we're actually talking about a whole bunch of other things that aren't healthcare. Yes, you are, you distilled it down very well. And you're far more fluid and knowledgeable in that conversation than, than me. I I know for from experience though, trying to get approval for something at times, you think it's basic and it gets rejected. Oh God! Like, why? You talk one person. <laughs> what was coded right? Well, what was coded wrong? Well, we can't tell you that. Or yeah, it's yeah. You pay for yeah. it. It's, why does it have to be so challenging and and like who is making a healthcare patient learn about billing codes. That's a wild thing to have happen. I worked when I lived in Boulder, I worked at a small sexual health clinic. And so I did know about billing codes when I was going into my giant healthcare battle. And so I could at least ask certain questions because I understood what was going on behind the scenes. But it was like, if I hadn't had that job, I would not even know how to push on those conversations. And even knowing that I couldn't get this organization to put the right billing codes down to get them approved by this organization. <laughs> like, y'all just need to talk to each other. Why am I even involved? Yes, the medical provider and the insurance company can talk to each other. It'd be amazing. <laughs> yeah, but there's no profit incentive for that, you know, to whatever Very extent they can true. minimize their work in that regard. I, uh, I which go back to something that you asked yourself when you had the defibrillator installed, was somebody else's life impacted or sacrificed for the materials that went into making the device? And then what was your life worth? What did you find out? Did you go down that that theory, that That's question? Such a complicated question. And I spent years there. You know, as I mentioned, my initial thought had been conflict minerals. And that's because in 2012, the Democratic Republic of the Congo was known as the rape capital of the world. The Dodd-Frank Act was just being passed. And that was financial reform legislation coming out of the big collapse in 2008-2009. But it included this weird little rider called Section 1502 that required companies registered on the U.S. stock exchange to essentially trace and then present whether there was tin, tantalum, tungsten, or gold 
essential to the functionality of whatever they were manufacturing in their products and whether that was from the Great Lakes region of Africa, which is Congo and the adjoining nations. Um, sorry, DR Congo. And it ended up being that I couldn't find out for years whether defibrillator companies were saying, yes, our, our devices have materials from the Congo in them or no. But I was very interested in like how that tracking might actually occur. And for those who aren't as familiar with conflict minerals, the basic concept there is that when you're talking about pit mining rather than industrialized mining, people with shovels can just dig up ore and sell it. And so that area was really benefiting from the electronics boom in the U.S., sort of consumer electronics. We tend to not think of medical technology as part of that, but of course it is. I have a, a motherboard and a battery inside me. And so it was very easy for armed groups to take over a pit to force people to work, especially child labor. There were a lot of sex slave situations and so the reason Congo was known as the rape capital of the world was there were these armed groups who were getting plenty of money to buy weapons, to buy drugs, to terrorize local communities through the electronics boom. And, you know, the more I looked at that scenario, the more it was like, I don't think I can figure out if the device in my body has materials specifically from that area because the companies we're talking about don't even know. Today, they probably have a slightly better idea than back then. It's been really interesting to watch the compliance environment sort of evolve. But this is still something we're talking about in terms of laptops all the time. You know, whatever the sort of conflict hotspots are, are mining materials making it into the supply chain. And what ended up becoming really interesting to me was, okay, so the Great Lakes region of Africa is one potential scenario. What are the other potential scenarios for rock coming out of the ground that could end up in my body? And and how should I feel about that? Like, are there examples of what would be considered a good mining project? Does that exist? Can I wrap my head around that? And so what I really ended up down the rabbit hole on was corporate social responsibility. And I traveled to a mine in the rainforest of Madagascar, very new mine being carved out of endemic jungle. It was called Mbatuvi, and it was a cobalt and nickel mine. I have cobalt in my battery and nickel in my microelectronics. And I spent a lot of time talking to the communities around that site, as well as people at the company about what their programs were. Because I was in Madagascar, I then went down to an older Rio Tinto mine called QMM, and it was a titanium sands mine. And of course, an implanted cardiac defibrillator is in a titanium box, essentially a titanium can. And so I learned about how you take titanium out of the sands and how those communities were impacted. And it's just an incredibly complex thing to talk about because there's a lot of good intentions and improved porting standards and not regulations necessarily that are coming from these governments, but more regulations that come through the funding mechanisms, you know, Citibank and Wells Fargo and Bank of America. They all sign on to these sort of standards that they will uphold projects to. And a lot of the things that look really good going in don't always play out when the metals market dips low, don't always play out as one stakeholder sells out and another comes in. And there's just a lot of questions in that part of the world when things are underdeveloped. 
people tend to have a lot of hope that the mining company will be able to somehow fix these things that you or I might think it is the government's job to do, you know, depending on political leanings. But like, is it a mining company's job to give people health care? Is it a mining company's job to pave the roads, build schools? Like what is within that purview and not? And so you end up in this really like wicked, sticky situation where mining companies are actually suddenly in charge of social programs and biodiversity offsets and things that are not their expertise. And the results are really mixed. So I came to think of the question that I was asking as, okay, this is the work of a writer. This is the work of a book. You ask the question that doesn't have another place to necessarily be asked in this way. And you ask it as deeply as you can and even though it seems like there's not an answer, the act of sort of exploring the insides of the question and finding its contours, not only will some answers sort of emerge, but it is useful as a society for us to ask and keep asking and not turn away. Beautiful and remarkable that you traveled around the globe to go to those places and see what was going on. and. Yes, legislation can get passed, and I think it has all the, the best intentions, but in the end, who's going to track it? And that's with a lot of stuff with legislation and laws. It's who's going to track it, whether it's finance, these types of minerals, whatever. You got to have accountability, and you got to have that in, in place as well. And I'm sure you met some remarkable people along the way, along your throughout your journey to see what you were out to search for. I really did. I think I think once I understood that there wasn't going to be just one answer or like mm -hmm. one way to have an ICD that only had positive impact, right? Like that's a that's a pipe dream. And I think folks are probably thinking and they're right to think oh, like, oh my God, look around you right now. Everything, every every object has a story, came from somewhere, has and organic matter or chemical compounds or things that came together in the making of that object, right? And how is it more meaningful to ask the question about the ICD than the computer that we're staring at? It's That's where the exercise and the question asking is so important. But I really wanted to see how my life was linked to other people's. And I think that is too often obfuscated. You know, it's we find ourselves absorbed by the worlds we inhabit. We find ourselves in kind of entitlement to having access to certain types of technology or resources. And we forget that they come from communities and that an indigenous people might actually be kicked out of their ancestral forest, not only so that the mining can occur, but so the mine company can have a biodiversity offset for their mine, which is really complex. I never thought that biodiversity offsets were sort of morally complicated, but when we identify indigenous people as a threat to the forest and the mining company is tasked with improving forest to offset their, their mining project, then yeah, people get removed from ancestral lands. And so there's just all snarly, snarly pieces. And so it felt important to look people in the eyes and really gain a sense of this object in my body is actually really sacred. It took a lot to make it. And what does it mean to live in a way where we look at the things around us and we understand what they take? Perhaps we have gratitude for what they are. And we also then 
make more conscious choices about when we say yes to things. And this is where we get looped back to the way that death shapes the planet, our cultural relationship shapes the planet. Because I am a young person, at least for a few more years, you know, I'm, I'm now about to turn 38, which is an age I never thought I would get to be. So for a lot of people, it's morally uncomplicated to give me healthcare resources because certainly a young person should get more years. But it's when we start asking about stages of life where maybe there's not a, a lot of years remaining. How do you make decisions from that place? And I'm not here to say that I have one one right answer, but American healthcare does spend an extraordinary amount of resources right at the end of life for a lot of people when that life is on its end anyway. And so recognizing again that these resources come from somewhere, they impact people's lives, they are sacred. It really changes the way we move through the world to hold that in mind. And for me in particular, I actually throughout my journey have discovered that I probably never needed a defibrillator to begin with, which is a particularly bitter pill for me, given I now have this broken technology stranded inside me. My medications were perhaps not very well managed when I was a young person, and there may have been another way to keep me safe through a less invasive means, medication, mm -hmm. without having to implant the technology. And, you know, I'm now on my third device. The resources required in my particular case have been very high considering that the device has never actually saved my life has only caused negative impacts to my life my wow. sister's life has been saved by her device so that's more complicated right yeah. so i'm not here to say that no one no one gets to have one but i actually am on the path now to explanting my entire system and becoming an ex-cyborg i'm hoping that that happens by the time i'm 42 you'll repeat that you're working on explanting to become an X what again? X cyborg. <laughs> An X cyborg. Okay. Cyborg. okay. Thank you. I did not catch that. I appreciate you repeating it. Thank it's a, a charming term. <laughs> so Katie, you're working on being able to live life without an implant. You're trying to, you know, figure that out. What about for you and your writing? You've written a book. It is getting a ton of traction and I am so amped to read it now. And <laughs> Thank you. I, I have a friend to introduce you to who has gone through the ringer with her heart issues. Uh, is it um, Jenny? No, Boots Knight. Okay. Can't, I know oh, her as Suzanne Knight. I know Boots. You know Suzanne? I know Boots. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Everybody, she's now Boots. I've known <laughs> Suzanne for so long. I just, I, I mean, when you know somebody with, when they use the first name and now she uses her middle. I just have to go. Hard, hard, yeah. I cannot. So you know Suzanne, beautiful. I'm Yeah, so she found her way to me when my book came out because so many people were like, Oh my God, you were both ski instructors at the same time. You both have the heart thing. So yeah, we got connected. That's that's beautiful. I'm I'm so happy to hear. So tell tell us what as you're working through all of this other stuff. Are you now a ski instructor again? Are you hiking and biking? Or is life at a different mellow activity plane and there's a lot more time for writing and thinking? You, you tell me. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an, an interesting uh, spot I find myself in. So 
I tried to move back to the Valley in 2019 and I failed and I ended up, uh, I just couldn't find anything. And, and at the time I'd been writing fairly well in New Mexico, working on lightning flowers. And so I ended up outside Santa Fe by about 20 miles on the side of a mesa for two and a half years, which was a magical spot in terms of house and land, but it was really not good for my life. And it just made me done with living places that weren't Jackson. I mean, this has felt like home in my heart for so long, and I was so resentful that I ever had to leave. And I did understand for a few years that, you know, it made sense too. I went to grad school. I did some of the things that people have to leave the Valley to do. But it was like, no, I need to find a way to go home. So I've been so grateful to step into Charlie's house. But our timing was a little off. So I didn't I didn't pick up a side job for the winter or anything. I think I would have liked to ski instruct half for the fun of it and, and half for the past benefits. But most of my time is spent doing promotion still for Lightning Flowers, you know, a, a few book clubs, speaking engagements, and, you know, pitches for book festivals, that stuff. And then also working on my next book and doing things to try to line up funding for that. I have a patronage account that I make book to and and work on. And I'm working on the book proposal so that hopefully I can have an agent sell that book within the next period here. There's always a weird pressure in a writing career. Some people come right out of their first book into their second book really fast. And I've been on the slower side because I needed some emotional transition time and COVID was wacky. And then I work with clients. So a lot of my work, I do occasionally read book manuscripts for people or I teach classes regularly, but a lot of my work is specifically on trauma writing. I work as a trauma writing doula, helping people birth these really difficult stories. And that requires an attention to physiologically where they are with their trauma, socially, what kind of messages have they taken in about their experience and the stories they are or aren't allowed to tell craft wise what does it look like to confront things like fragmented memory on the page you know how do you incorporate um good storytelling when someone is having to go to a bunch of doctor's appointments which can actually be very boring on the page so really working on those craft aspects and then ultimately what all of that lines up to for a lot of my clients is a spiritual invitation so people are through the act of telling their story, really having to confront certain things, rise to certain challenges, maybe somatically process emotions or other trauma energy that is stored in their body, like move it through. And through that process, they become someone else. They sort of rise to it. And so that is a lot of my work. And I have had kind of a disrupted winter. I've had some medical appointments. I've just had a, I just was sick for a week. You could hear it in my voice. So it hasn't been a great winter for adventuring. I don't have a lot of my own gear right now. I'm just sort of confronting like, okay, Jackson life requires like you invest in these types of clothing, you, you invest in these types of gear, or you just are so sad because the whole point of all this snow is to play in it. Right. And so I feel like I'm kind of in between worlds right now. Like I need more time on this land to come into alignment with all the things I love to do and have the resources I need to do them. And But I will say Charlie Craighead's house, you have to park on Antelope Flats Road and then snowshoe or cross-country ski in. And so <laughs> I do that almost every day. And it's really good sort of like tether to the earth of like having to be outside before mm -hmm. you get into your car. I really, it's been kind of an ass kicker, but I love it. 
That's it's beautiful. And this year, for just so people have an understanding, we've had a banner snow year this year. So when you're saying that you have to snowshoe or cross country ski in, it's not as though you're on this packed. Maybe you are in a packed road, but <laughs> it's challenged because you don't know what the conditions are going to be, and it has been either super cold or just snowing a lot. And where you are, you get a lot more snow than what we get it here in town because you are at a higher elevation and it's just notorious to get a lot more snow out there and then with the wind that can accumulate. So talk about the re- fortitude and resilience for you to have that commitment <laughs> to get in and out of the house and to make it to all your appointments and um, Kudos to you, Katie. Kudos. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Yeah, the wind is really driving out here and it drifts heavily. Someone asked the other night why I haven't sung at the Hootenanny this season. And it was like, because there was a blizzard every Monday and getting from out here into town was not going to happen. Right. Now, wrapping things up, how can people reach out to you and and find you? What are those methods? And especially to keep following you for your next book. How exciting. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. yeah, so Lightning Flowers is available at both Valley Bookstore and Jackson Hole Book Trader. They've been amazing partners. I try to keep the, some of the little free libraries stocked, so you can check there too. Oh. Um, it's at Tacoma County Library as well. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Girl Makes Fire. My website is katherinestandifer.com. And yeah, there's just a lot going on there, different class that I'm teaching or services that I offer. And I'll also be at Jackson Hole Writers Conference. I'm joining the faculty of that, which was a real bucket, bucket list moment. Oh, Thank you, what a wonderful, <laughs> what an amazing event that we have here. That right? conference. Yeah. It's really a special one. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for joining that faculty. And, you know, not to dismiss, I mean, we only have so much time and today, but not to dismiss what you're doing, you know, trauma writing as a, a doula trauma writer to help other people share their stories. Not everybody's a writer. I mean, you start off as a writer, but for you to help, and it's got to be quite emotional for you to travel that path with somebody and help them extract that experience, the details, the memories, the feelings, the emotions, and put it in a, in a form that you can publish it that somebody else is going to read it. It is quite a process. Yeah, I wish I had had one. (laughs) You know, writing Lightning Flowers changed me. I had to spend a lot of time alone in the process. I had a period I was doing a lot of trauma processing related to the story on that Mesa in New Mexico, just in a short-term rental in in early 2019. And then I also rented a cabin out here in Cali in fall 2019, where I was doing a lot more of it. And it can be a really lonely and underworld experience. And one of the things I've been really interested in always is sort of what it means to be both a modern human and a spiritual human. When I was a Murray Center intern back in 2006, all these amazing minds would come through that ranch. And so many of them were concerned with this question of regaining spirituality or being spiritual through the land, despite all of us being in modernity. And 
trauma writing doula work strikes me as actually very like old and archetypal. It sort of crosses over with these old storyteller archetypes and sort of medicine people. Like what does it mean to have gone through an experience that is extremely difficult and come out the other side as someone with something to share? And so I like to say that a lot of our experiences are the first half of an initiation, but we can't really access the wisdom of them until we go through that process of reflecting, making the art from them, alchemizing them really. And people sort of completing an initiation with me. And that is um, really deep work and it's really special work and it's not for everyone. But there are some of us who are just called that these difficult stories aren't supposed to be things we just went through and try to ignore. You know, they're supposed to be of service to other people and make us into who we need to be. And I think we will leave it at that, Katie. Thank you, you so much for having me on. You're very eloquent with your <laughs> your thoughts and your your messaging far better than me. So I am so happy that you're the one who is, who's been speaking this entire time and not me. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, this podcast is so important. This is such a special community. It is a lovely community, and we have so many fascinating people to have them share their stories, and their experiences, just to lift us all up and an opportunity for us to learn from other people and to connect, to just get to know somebody a little bit more who you would have never known was right out your back door. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you, Katie. I, I wish you a very fruitful and productive and engaging life as you travel your path and many, many more years of life here with us all. Let it be so. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Katie. To learn more about Katie Standifer and her book, Lightning Flowers, visit the JacksonHoleConnection.com episode number 236. Thank you, Michael, for keeping this podcast going through the marketing and the editing and production. Folks, if you want to do a podcast, have your own podcast, reach out to Michael. He can help you out. And thank you to my wife, Laura, and my boys, Lewis and William. I appreciate you all listening. All of you fans who listen, share this podcast with your friends and family or somebody that you haven't connected with in a while. I do appreciate you sharing your time with me today. And cheers till next week for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.